Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have uh, Lay Rothschild. He's the CEO of a company called Cumage. Um, what's interesting about him is that he has, uh, he's been issued 110 patents, and he has 250 more pending patents, which is crazy. Um, so I want to talk to him actually about the patent business and um, how he started down this path and how he you know, accumulated so many patents and, uh, and all that. So, Lee, thanks for coming. How are you doing? Richard, it's always a pleasure pleasure to be with you again. And um, since we talked last, actually, as time goes on, even more patents, actually. I now have approximately 130 issued patents where I'm the sole inventor. And uh, you are correct, approximately 250 pending with the patent office. More to come, we would hope. Sheesh. What started you down this, this path? Like, how did you get the idea that, uh, you know, you want to do something with your ideas, such as filing a patent? You know, it's like saying to someone, "How? why do you play the piano? I never really had a choice, Richard. I started um, inventing when I was 17 years old. I had some ideas when I was like 10 or 11. But the first time I actually approached, dared to approach the patent office with an idea, and that was quadraphonic stereo, was when I was 17 years old, and the patent was issued when I was 19. So that is uh, basically, I guess I'll, I'll date myself here by giving my age. That's 50 years ago. Um, right at that point when my first patent was issued. Um, so I've, it's been the theme of my life. Um, if you can't do anything else, uh, invent <laughs> in my case. Well, uh, it's great that you have so many patents. Um, I'm sure lots of inventors have patents, but then how do you get them in use? How do you market them? You know, I, don't, I don't think you'd have time to commercialize, you know, even a quarter of all the patents that you have. So what's your process once you, uh, write up your idea and, and file for a patent on it. You know, Richard, you've hit it. Exactly. Thank you for the segue. A patent is only as good as the paper that it's printed on, and it certainly doesn't entitle you to any monetization. So there's three ways, Richard, that I've been able to monetize the patents during my lifetime, and I really needed to monetize. When you have as many patents as I do, there's a, a substantial material expense in maintaining those patents and obtaining those patents. I spent millions of dollars in obtaining the patents that we talked about. So here's the question, how do we monetize? Three ways. The first thing that I've done in the past is I've been able to um, sell the patents. Um, I've sold patents to companies like Apple and companies like Intellectual Ventures. I'm listed on their site as an inventor and other companies around the world. So I've been very fortunate in the fact that people have come to me and said for things that I wasn't really sure were valuable and said, Lee, we'd like to you know, um, buy the patents. I've been successful in that way. The second thing, which is probably the love of my life, Richard, you mentioned QMunch before, um, and that's just one of the businesses that I've taken my patents on and have had the honor of participating as a principal in the business. Um, I set up a company called Barpoint um, really out of my garage, um, and it became a Nasdaq-traded $1 billion-plus market cap company. We ended up selling it in uh, early 2000. Um, I've also been successful in using my intellectual property and taking two other companies public to the public exchanges. That's another way. And it's real, really wonderful to see your technology in use. And we have a lot of technology in use now. We can talk about that whenever whenever you want to. But that's the second way to monetize. The third way, which is what we're doing now, is we're taking the patents that we have and looking for licensees, um, people that are using our patents or people that are infringing our patents, our intellectual property, and we're asking them to take licenses. We've been very successful. We've licensed a, you know, a reasonably good chunk of the Fortune 100 and the Fortune 500 have licenses on my various technologies. So that's been really wonderful as well. So those are the three ways that I would tell anyone that they should you know, monetize their patents. Certainly does work well for me. Do you, um, I mean, if you, if you build it, will they come? 
you know, if you have a patent out there, are there companies and individuals that scour, you know, the newly approved patents looking to license them or buy them, or is it you have to make the effort to get your patent out there and find an audience for it? Kevin Costner, in terms of the patent business, was incorrect. If you build them, maybe for baseball with Costner, but with us, if you build them, they won't come in 99% of the cases. Once in a while, we'll have a company that will call us and say, we want to use your technology or we are using your technology. We just had a major exercise company um, call us recently, but that's the exception and took a license on one of our, one of our many patents. Normally, the rule is we have to scour the, um, the, the industries and see who's using our technology. And then we contact them and we say, you know, you're infringing our various patents or a particular patent and we'd like you to take a license. Sometimes they will willingly. Sometimes, unfortunately, Richard, they won't. And in that case, we have, you know, a, a really good team of attorneys um, spread out around the country now um, to, um, to enforce our patents. And that's a principal business that we're involved in. So how did all this start out and how has it changed over time as you accumulated more and you became more savvy with your patent portfolio? Well, you know, it started out in the fact out of nowhere where, you know, for lack of anything that I really could do, I, you know, became, um, as I said, at an early age, an inventor. Um, but it progressed in the fact that after I sold my last company, my public company, um, uh, I was still patenting and uh, I plan on continuing to file patents and hopefully receive patents till the end of my days, which hopefully won't, won't be for, for quite a while. I love inventing. Um, it's a theme, as I said, of my life. So in terms of a large portfolio, which we have now, we control probably, besides my own patents, I've purchased patents, Richard. We control probably 300 or so patents right now. Um, and on those, it's become necessary and, and advisable for us to scour the um, industries that exist and see who's utilizing our patents um, and then um, require them or ask them and subsequently require them to take licenses. In order to do that, but I've set up what I consider a world-class organization um, you know, with attorneys that assist me um, around the country um, with, um, you know, business development, um, with um, research and development in order to see who is infringing our patent portfolio. So we have a full, um, a full company, which, which I'm running now in terms of the licensing of my patents. Okay. This will be a tough question. You don't have to answer it. But when, if someone says, uh, oh, they're a patent troll, what does that mean to you? What does it mean if you're a patent troll? It, you know, well, you know, it's a question I'm asked. I've been asked before, Richard, so I'm glad that you brought up that subject. And it's a dicey subject, too. You know, the Constitution of the U.S. provides patent protection. So that's been going on since, you know, the founding fathers. And I think that some of the great industries that exist wouldn't exist without patent protection. So I've been called a patent troll, as you're, you're inferring, in many cases and many times. And I think that anyone now that chooses to enforce a patent Unfortunately, there are people in this world, companies, major companies, Richard, that have no respect for the patent system, that think that if they didn't invent it in their you know, large billion-dollar-plus company, that um, it's not of value, and that they're happy to trounce on other people's patents. We've seen that example over and over and over, and it's a very unfortunate example. Unfortunate for small inventors who don't have the resources that we now do in order to you know, facilitate enforcing and licensing the patents. So I feel that, well, you know, the word patent troll is kind of a, has kind of taken a, a very, very unfortunate negative term. If it means that someone is going to enforce their patents, I give them a lot of credit. I'm very, very happy to be in the same sentence, um, in the same genre as Tom Edison. He spent a lot of time in court enforcing his patents. I think one of the great inventors of our time, obviously, or Wilbur, Wilbur and Orville Wright, who spent the, the last part of their careers in enforcing their airline patents. So I love being, you know, in that same, in the same field, in that same genre with people of that ilk who also chose to enforce their patent rights. This idea of patent troll, unfortunately, has become very negative. You know, it takes, in most cases, Richard, it takes three to five years to get a patent. It takes your heart and your soul, a lot of intellectual ability, and a lot of time, as I said, and a lot of money. So you do that, and the patent office issues you, duly issues you after much examination, your patent, and then you know you, you seek to enforce it because that's what the patent is. 
the patent is made to enforce, made to give you that monopoly and that particular invention that you've been smart enough to, to invent. And then someone comes along and they call you a patent troll. Basically, yeah. that means you have no right to enforce your patent. Well, then let's just get over it and let's just tear down the entire patent system in the United States and perhaps the world. Is that what we That's want to it. do? And let anyone yeah, so just... It's, it's sour grapes, really. You know, it's jealousy. Yeah. Yeah, anyone right. who tramp on other people's rights. It's a terrible system in, in terms of, you know, what's happened in terms of people that are out there. And I'll tell you, these people that are propagating the word patent troll, they're not the individual inventors like myself, you know, or the small inventors that are much smaller than I am. They're these large companies that would like you to think that anyone that wants to enforce a patent um, is a patent troll. The only one that the companies don't think are patent trolls are themselves when they try to enforce their own patent. It's a sad situation in terms of intellectual property and one that very much needs to be corrected. So for a, um, a new inventor or a small inventor, how would you, uh, you know, give them guidance? Someone, you know, they're full of ideas. They want to, uh, you know, invent something and maybe get a patent on it. Like, what would you recommend they do if they're just starting out? You know, I think that that small inventor has really created you know, the worldwide economy or certainly the United States economy, a good chunk of it that we see now. I just wanted to mention that when you look at the great industries of our time, you look at Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak from the garage, you look at Philo and Yang, you know, from the garage, so to speak, you look at Michael Dell from his dorm room, you look at Zuckerberg from the, the Harvard dorm room. These are huge industries that account for a good chunk of our GMP and they came from nowhere. So don't trample on the small inventor, you know, nourish the small inventor, give the small inventor the tools in order to go forward. And one of those tools, obviously, is the patent protection system. To answer your question, but I would say that, you know, we need to, with my advice to the small inventor is to persevere, you know, to, if you have an idea to get to seek patent protection, either with a provisional, and if you want, I can explain the difference, or a non-provisional patent, to take the time and effort to pursue your dream of getting a patent, and once you have a patent, don't let anyone trample on it. Find an attorney, find a company like our company, like Patent Asset Management, which I'm chairman and CEO of, um, to help defend your rights. You know, or go to the companies and try to license your patents if you can. Don't take no for an answer. You know, defend what, what is yours. So um, then let's talk a little bit about provisional versus, uh, I guess, a full patent. Why would you file a provisional? What's the trade-offs versus... Uh just going for a full patent. There's a, the patent system of the U.S. allows for two ways to file a patent. One is a provisional patent, and what that means for a very small amount of money, I think it's like $150, you can take your idea, um, send it to, over to fill out a form. Those forms are available, or you can use a patent agent. And, you know, a number of companies will do that. We're not involved in that, by the way. But you can seek to uh, protect your idea but from the time you file a, um, a provisional patent, Richard, it's, you're allowed one year where it stays sealed at the patent office. And then after that year, you are required by law from the anniversary date, one year, that you file to turn it into a non-provisional patent. And that means at that point, you'll pay some more money. It's, uh, I think, another approximately approximately $1,000 um, to file a non-provisional patent. But you'll have the earlier date that when you file the provisional patent, so if you file the provisional patent on January 1st, 2021, you'll have until uh, December 31st, 2022 to file your non-provisional. At that point, the patent office with a non-provisional will in due course, in due course, they'll examine it and they'll tell you why they will or why they will not grant it. That's called an office action. And you'll have to respond to that office action and tell them, why you think that they were incorrect in saying they could not grant it. Under the U.S. statute, uh, Patrick Patent statute, there's a number of reasons that they'll tell you that they can't grant it. You have to overcome those reasons in an office action and then pursue further in, until the point that you um, feel satisfied or the patent office feels satisfied that, that they'll give you a patent. That's called the notice of allowance. Or maybe they'll never give you a patent. That's why I say it's a long and cumbersome process and it's quite an honor to you know, for anyone to have a patent, and then it gives you the ability to try to monetize that patent. So I would advise small inventors without substantial resources to seek the provisional patent route if they don't have a lot of money. You can kind of do that on your own. 
and to take that idea and immediately try to get that protection. And then if you still like it, you know, and you have more resources within a year, um, then you can pursue a non-provisional path, which will give you, you know, which will put you on the glide path to getting a, a full, a full patent, a full published patent. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Only when you have, by the way, a published patent, you know, an issued patent, as the term would be, um, Richard, do you have standing in a, in a U.S. court or a world court to pursue your rights? So what, what things do you have to do in a patent application to make it more likely that you're not going to have endless office actions or just an outright rejection and that it'll get through in a reasonable period of time? Well, now we're talking about non-provisional because provisionally, they're not going to examine it at all. So when you, when you file a provisional, a non-provisional patent, it's good to have a competent attorney that obviously that's going to file it. Um, and a competent attorney is going to know, you know, what he needs to do in order to, you know, um, see that the, that the process goes well. But you never know what the patent office is going to do. There's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of examiners, and each examiner is going to, you know, look at it, look at the patent in their own way, and and cite, you know, different reasons, including prior art or, you know, ineligible patent subject matter or, you know, anticipation. Those are all terms in the patent business that we utilize. Um, as to why they will or will not give you a patent. So I would say just get a good attorney, a competent attorney, follow the process. Um, and it's not a quick process, by the way, and proceed you know, with diligence and with tenacity. Don't give up with tenacity. If you believe in it, you know, there's a number of ways that you can finally um, you know, obtain the patent. You know, I'm not asking you to give legal advice, but uh, what have you seen or some of the things you maybe should or shouldn't do uh, that'll help you, you know, it'll make it more likely that your patent uh, may be granted. I go, you know, again, it's not legal advice, it's just your, your anecdotal of, thoughts. No, good question, Richard. One of the things that you should always do is you should keep careful notes on as you invent. I do that now because those notes may be dispositive in a court hearing later on when you're trying to enforce the patent. You know, you need to show the date that you conceived of the idea and the drawings that you came up with and your original concept. So it's always very, very, very good advice to have an inventor save all the notes, even if it's scribbled on a napkin when you came up with the first idea. Make notes as to when you conceived it and anything following that. So that would be one idea. As far as you know, proceeding on the process, I would just say to be diligent in following it through. You know, um, work with your attorney in terms of a non-provisional patent. You may not need an attorney for a provisional patent, by the way, but you certainly need one for a non-provisional patent either an attorney or a patent agent, and just, you know, follow it through with tenacity. And if you believe that you can, you know, that it's something that you want to do, it may take three years, it may take longer. But at that point, you just need to keep going forward until you, you're, you're lucky enough to receive a patent. I would say that of all the patents that are filed, um, you know, there's a, a smaller minority, I don't know the exact numbers, so I can't give it to you, that are actually granted. So it's not that easy to get a patent. So it's not that easy to get a patent. Well, uh, in terms of licensing versus selling, uh, which one's easier? And what are the dynamics of those two? What happened is, and this is something that I'd love your listeners to, to know, you know, we used to have in the United States a tremendously powerful patent system. You know, most of the experts, including myself, will tell you we no longer do. Because of what you mentioned earlier, this patent troll conception that the large companies, the multi-billion dollar companies put out, where their theory is the only patents that have value are our own patents. You know, not your patent, Lee, not your patent, Richard, not your patent, John. They have no value. Because of that, our patent system has been tremendously, um, tremendously devalued. Um, and that's caused, caused the patents that are out there to be able to be sold for a lot less than they used to. It used to be possible, Richard, for a good patent, even a single patent, to be sold if it's something of value, you know, um, for, you know, seven figures or high six figures. Now that number has gone drastically down. The patent market, any expert will tell you, has been greatly chastised in the last several years. And there are a number of reasons for that. Um, the American Vents Act, um, which was passed during the Obama administration, um, put in on place a, a process called the um, uh, IPR process, which is an internal review that anyone in the world can without standing, 
um, can order. So in other words, tonight, if you go home, Richard, or anyone else goes home, you know, and you're a U.S. citizen, not a U.S. citizen, you could be five years old or you could be 95 years old, you can pick a patent and you can file something with the patent office. It's about $20,000 to do that, Richard, and challenge the patent. And that's the new law that um, was um, created in America events. And yeah, that, um, that doesn't favor large corporations at all. Yeah, it, it's, it's absolutely terrible. And many people have lost um, numerous patents as a result of that. Um, and that's devalued the patent market. And in many cases, it goes before, those go before a patent trial board called PTAP, the Patent Trial Administrative Board. That's what PTAP stands for. And in many cases, for whatever reason, they've, they've voided the patents. So you can have a patent that you spend five years in getting and $100,000, and instantly it can be gone, even if you're not litigating it. So that's one thing that's devalued the market. The United States Supreme Court passed a decision um, maybe five years ago in a case called Alice, um, which says that patents can be declared by a federal district court or the circuit court in, um, void by those courts if the, if the courts believe that the patent was issued incorrectly and that it was ineligible subject matter. There's been numerous decisions now in different, in different districts, federal district court, where patents have been voided as a result of that. It's created a huge um, um, barrier um, for patent owners now in the patent world and also devalued tremendously the value of a patent. So to answer your question- What, on what do you point, do to protect yourself then? That's terrible, it's ridiculous. It's terrible. We have now, if you talk to experts, people like former patent commissioner David Capos and other very, very smart people, including federal judges. We have now one of the worst patent systems in the United States in terms of patent, um, in terms of patent um, protection for the owners. They're much favored, much favored to large corporations. What do you do to protect yourself? There's very little you can do. You just take your chances, you know, and, and, and you do the best you can. But many, many hundreds of patents have been declared invalid by either the IPR process or the 101 process. So it's most common now in our industry. And it's been, in my humble opinion, one of the worst things that could happen in the patent world. Not only do I share that opinion, but you know, everyone else in the industry shares that opinion. Well, how do you fight back against it when someone does that? I mean, how much would it take to fight, fight against it? And if you win, do you get anything or you just get left alone? Well, you say fight back if someone, there's no way to fight back if someone challenges your patent, you know, I mean, here's the bad news as well. If someone, the company's willing to pay $20,000 plus legal fees to challenge your patent for whatever reason they decide, and then, then it's going to trial at the patent and trial board, you have to hire, you know, an attorney. It can cost you a quarter of a million dollars to defend your patent. So I don't know how to tell you how to fight back unless, you know, if you're a larger enterprise like we are, you'll fight. If you're a smaller enterprise, you're in very, very, very bad shape, quite honestly, quite honestly, it, which is why it's valued. Probably, I would say, and this is my opinion, so I don't want it to be totally taken, but I would say the intellectual property value, if you consider all of it in the United States for United States patent holders, has probably been devalued by approximately approximately a trillion dollars since these decisions have come out. So I think the experts would agree with me on that. So as far as- What if you do a series of patents that are similar to try to, you know, make like an armor plating on an idea. Each one takes different aspects of an invention and you make like a, a tight that portfolio makes, of them. That makes it much harder. You're absolutely right. That's a very smart statement. So in order to, to uh, invalidate or void out 20 patents, they'd have to, the, the company that's going after you would have to spend a whole bunch of money, you know, in this case, 20,000 each approximately plus legal fees. If it was 20 patents, it would cost maybe a million dollars for someone. But companies, large companies, a million dollars, as you know, Richard, is a rounding error. And then there's the issue, which doesn't cost any money, of the one-on-one objection, where they say your patent is ineligible, was incorrectly issued by the patent office. And there's decisions all over the place with the federal district courts in that matter. And they're not consistent decisions. The judges have asked and the circuit have asked for clarification on those matters. But the Supreme Court ruling was, in my humble opinion, very vague on that. Um, and people are asking the Supreme Court to accept certiorari uh, on that matter. But the Supreme Court has not, not agreed to, to accept as of today certiorari to revisit that decision. 
So hundreds of patents have been declared invalid, um, uh, improperly issued, voided. Once the patent is voided, the patent's zero value um, because of that situation. Because of that situation. So it's a very, very What's the point of having a patent examiner if, if you just void it whenever you feel like it? Well, that's the question I'd like to ask as well. <laughs> you just asked the $69 question or the $690,000 question or the trillion dollar question. It's a very, very bad system right now. It's a very hostile environment for patent owners. Very hostile. Have you had many of these actions or has it been pretty quiet on your end? Not at all. We've lost um, patents to IPRs. Uh, we have a number of cases now where large companies, a consorti consortium of banks, are, are trying to challenge some of our patents in the financial services area. Um, you know, banks have unlimited money. You know, we, we don't. Um, we've had other patents that have been um, nullified by federal district court judges as ineligible subject matter. You know, those decisions we don't agree with, but unfortunately we have to abide by them. Is there an appeals process? Yes. Um, you can appeal a decision that PTAP makes, the Patent Trial Board, and an IPR to the federal circuit. Statistically, I would say that probably based on statistical um, occurrences, you have about a 50% chance of having the circuit um, affirm, affirm in your position, affirm your position. So it's a 50-50 chance. Again, a small player really can't do that. To, to file an appeal and to hire the attorney to file that is going to be quite expensive. So we, we've done that, actually, in one case. We appeal to the circuit. Um, but in other cases, it's just not worth our while. In the case of, um, it just depends on a you know, case-by-case -case example, um, Richard, um, but a small player wouldn't be able to do that, I would think, at all. Um, in the case of one-on-one -on -one decisions for ineligible subject matter, um, you can also appeal that to the circuit. And again, I would say the odds are probably 50-50, maybe 60-40 against you that the circuit will, uh, will support you. Um, and there's been all kinds of decisions in the circuit that are not, in my opinion, consistent. Um, so um, it's been very challenging for people that are in this patent business. There's legislation before Congress, but it's been stalled um, to help re-strengthen re the patent system, which some legislators, some congressmen, some senators realize is now one of the worst systems in the world. People have said, and I've read articles, Richard, where they say the Chinese system of patent protection, the German system of patent protection, the UK system of patent protection, the European Union system of patent protection is much, much better than ours. How much does it cost to defend a patent against uh, one of these two actions? Well, it would depend on the firm that you're using. If you're talking about an IPR against a single patent, um, it could cost to defend it. You don't have to pay any fees and file with the patent office, but you do have to pay legal defense. I would say that the range would probably be between 75000 and 350000 for a single patent. A lot of money. So that so, knocks out pretty much everybody. That wouldn't that would in any way uh, uh, that wouldn't in any way include um, appeal and appellate action. That would just be a simple defense. Do businesses contact you and say, "Hey, I'd like to license your stuff," and then if you don't, magically one of these actions gets filed, or do they do they come out of the blue and just punch you? In out the of the blue, out of the blue. We've had um, a consortium of banks that have just out of the blue on a you know regular basis just filed to challenge some of my financial services patents. Yes, out of the blue, no warning, no litigation. We've had people file the IPRs against us. We've never litigated. The patent's just sitting there. You know, as a larger operator, they know that, you know, we have valuable, valuable stuff and they want to um, kill it. Very, very, very unfair and very, very challenging for us and anyone else in this business. What would be a subject matter that's not, uh, I forget what you call it, but when they say uh, the subject matter is inappropriate, I don't know how you phrase it. but Ineligible. You know, what, what does that mean? Yeah. It means that under the Supreme Court decision in Alice, any software patent particularly system and method patents involving software, but it could be other things as well. There's a test that, not exactly a test, but there's a series of, of evaluative steps um, that a judge could look at to decide on their own um, that the patent was incorrectly issued by the patent office. Incorrectly issued. And this is, by the way, after you paid, you know, you spent three to five years and paid tens of thousands of dollars to have your patent issued. 
a federal district judge who most cases, 99.9% of the case, the federal district judges are not patent experts, they're not patent attorneys, they're not you know, extremely knowledgeable in terms of their day-to-day activities in intellectual property. So um, they have the opportunity on their own volition to, you know, if a challenge is made, if a challenge is made to cancel the patents. I would say of those challenges, probably 50 to 60% of the patents that have been challenged have been, been voided, been voided. And then probably of the ones that have been appealed to the federal circuit, probably 50 to 60% of them have still been voided. They haven't survived. How, how can the patent office just sit there and say, oh, you know, I mean, it makes them look incompetent. And I mean, I don't know. Well, like, what's, what's been the reaction of the patent office that the examiner is doing more office actions to try to make it less likely this will happen or to bolster their credibility? Like, what's happened? Well, keep in mind the patent office, you know, is kind of regulated by the Department of Commerce which is regulated by the U.S. the U.S. Congress. So I think the only remedy is congressional legislation to change the system, and many of the congressmen have talked about it. But there's another side of this, Richard, which is that the major companies are spending millions, tens of millions of dollars in lobbying to keep the system the way it is or even weaken the system further. If you're a huge, you know, multi-billion dollar, trillion dollar company, you want the patent system to be extremely weak, except when you're going after your own patents and defending them. But then in a major case, you know, like you look at Samsung versus Apple, which is one of the more famous recent cases that's gone on. I would venture to say, you know, that um, that's been going on, I think, for eight or nine years. You know, don't quote me exactly on that, but approximately probably that period of time. And if I had to guess, this is my guess, I would say that several hundred million dollars have been spent in legal fees on that case. But Apple and Samsung are very large multinational companies. So when they're fighting, it's with big money. When you go after, you know, Lee Rothschild's patents, it's it's an uneven playing field. You know, when a multi-trillion dollar company, multi-billion dollar company or a trillion dollar company goes after me, it's not a level playing field. To answer your question, the only thing that can be done, and some of the congressmen realize how horrible the system is and they're trying to correct it, but it's stalled in Congress. Stalled, in my humble opinion, because of the tremendous lobbying that the bigger companies are doing to keep the system the way it is or to weaken the system, to weaken the system. Um, the patent office really can't do anything. They're subservient to the laws of the land, to, 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 to the congressional acts. The American Vent Act is what created this IPR system. It's a horrible system. So it was a very, very, very bad law, in my humble opinion. Um, the American Vents Act, the Supreme Court decision, according to Federal Circuit judges and according to um, the former patent commissioner, Dave Kaplos, and other legal experts, including myself, it's one of the worst decisions that's ever come out because it's a vague decision by the Supreme Court of the United States and it needs to be clarified. So far, the Supreme Court hasn't clarified it. And the federal district judges are using that decision to invalidate hundreds of patents. But why would federal district judges support large companies if they know the game? I mean, they're not stupid. Why wouldn't they deliberately uh, throw sand in the gears and make it hard and even more expensive for these companies to do that if they know that's the game? I can't answer that question as to motive. Only they would be able to say that, but the record stands on its own. And hundreds of patents have been invalidated by the court system. So I can't say why. You know, big companies come in and they present reasonably, you know, cogent arguments as to why the patent is a piece of junk a piece of trash and shouldn't have been issued. In many cases, the judges believe that to be the truth. I'm not trying to criticize the judges. They're supposed to do what they're supposed to do. And I'm sure they're doing it with, you know, honorable intentions. I'm not in any way, you know, criticizing the judges. They're, they've been given this law and they're using it. Yeah. And well, has, law- have, have your attorneys uh, examined, you know, a lot of these actions to look for commonalities to bolster and strengthen patents that you come out with now? Yeah, I mean, we're always looking to see what's our best, you know, our best defense when we're challenged, you know, but I will tell you this, I don't think any patent attorney or patent expert in this country can tell you on any particular patent what the federal district court will do, because the rulings have been all over the place. You just don't know when a patent is challenged and you get before the judge, the federal district judge, you don't know what their opinion is going to be until they render it and be because of the nature of the law now, of the Supreme Court ruling, I should say, has become law. A president, you just don't know what the federal... And courts have done so many different things. Courts in Texas may look at it differently than courts in Missouri, than courts in Delaware, than courts in Florida. 
You know, there's no consistency. That's the problem. And the federal circuit rules have also, federal circuit rulings have also not been consistent, in my opinion. So when we've had other, we've had judges that have said that, what really needs to happen is it would be wonderful to have the Supreme Court of the United States clarify their rulings so there'd be some, you know, definitive um, understanding of what patents, which patents are ineligible, meaning voided, and which patents are not. Right now, I don't think any expert, certainly not, not, not I, can tell you that. Yeah, but I would think, you know, if the large companies are trying to do this, they're also going to try to pick judges and, you know, whisper sweet nothings in their ear and, you know, do something, you know, other, other corrupt things to lobby them. And are there, are there certain judges that uh, are famous for overturning everything? There are certain districts in the United States that are more, you know, less patent friendly than others, it seems like. It seems like, and then of course in the district, it would depend on the attitude of the individual judges. And I guess there's a lot of factors that go in with the fence that you're putting up, what you, how good your attorney is, how good the other side is. You know, in the case of a small player versus a very large player, it's the, the, the playing ground is not level, Richard. So that's the problem. That's the problem. And the stakes are very high because you're risking your patent. Once it's voided, the only thing, once it's voided, you, you can't sue on it anymore. You can't receive any money on it. You can't sell it. The only thing you can do is appeal to the circuit. But the decision of a, the federal circuit will take approximately a year. And again, for a small player, it costs a lot of money. So it's a very challenging environment, which is why what we do at Patent Asset Management is, is definitely a service you know, to, to, to our clients. We have clients that you know, come to us, Richard, and say, we have patents, but we can't assert them on our own. Would you be interested in buying these patents? And we have, when in many cases, we've bought patents and we've asserted those patents when we think that they're, you know, they have really good, good infringement claims. Well, what would, there's gotta be something that would make a patent stronger, you know, like our older ones that have been in play longer, no. better, you know, do they attack at the beginning or at the end when a patent was gonna expire anyway in a few years? Like, is there any rhyme or reason to it? No, there's no rhyme or reason in all the years that I've been doing this. If for an IPR, you can, as I said, when you go home tonight, you can just slip through the patent list and file on any patent you would like, as long as you have the 20, I think it's 22 and a half thousand to file it. And then um, they, uh, at that point, it goes to the patent trial board. And if they decide to institute a trial on it, you know, whoever you filed against Richard's gonna have to, you know, defend themselves. And as I said, that can be between 75,000 and 300,000 per patent or more, or more. And you don't have to have any standing, by the way, or any reason to file. You can just go ahead and file. You have to put together a petition, of course, you know, and pay the money. But you don't. You could be five years old. You don't have to be a U.S. citizen. And here's the most interesting part that troubles me the most. You'll be very, very surprised to hear this, Richard. Tell me if you are. Um, after the Patent and Trial Board decides that the patent is valid, in other words, valid, you filed, Richard, against my patent, hypothetically, and the patent trial board says that my patent is valid. I spent 75000 to 300000 Guess what? Under the law, you can file again as many times as you like. It's not the case of race judicata, as it would be in some other things. So you could file another five times if you'd like until you, until at some point you wear me down and, and I'll lose my patent. How's that for fair? Jesus. I had heard something like this happen with Theranos. I, I forget when I read the story um, that the... There was one guy that was a friend of the family had a patent, and you know the the lawyer they had suing him was uh, promised shares of stock in Theranos, so they just bludgeoned him to death, millions and millions of dollars, and he finally gave up. It's a very unfair system right now. It's not a level playing field. You'd be you'd have a much better chance if you had a Chinese patent, in my opinion, or a German patent, litigating in those venues. So in those venues, it's very tough in the United States right now, and I think a number of people would agree with me at least on the side of being a patent owner, which is, again, the reason that, you know, my business is successful right now in the fact that we have had the experience of this in, you know, a number of years. We've been litigating patents now, um, you know, involved in patent litigation. We're not attorneys, so I shouldn't say we're litigating patents, but we've been involved in patent litigation now for more than 20 years in defending the, 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 the rights of my patents. And now what we're doing, Richard, is, as I said, on a selective basis, we're buying patents or we're partnering with patent owners to defend their rights. So and we have a whole staff around the country to, to do that. So, but it's very difficult, very difficult, very challenging. You have to have, you know, the resources to do it, the attorneys to do it, the patience to do it, and, and, and the risk. 
and the risk to do it, the risk factor to bear the risk. So if I have a patent, let's say on cell phones that, you know, making money on and someone files some of this against me, can I still continue to collect royalties on my patent until the decision comes down? Or is that stuff? Well, it depends on the way your license is written. Now, I, I said absolutely, maybe too quickly. It would depend on what your license. Most licenses, if you had a decent license, Richard, you know, if, if, if I looked over your license, to give you, to give you, or an attorney, better yet, an attorney to look over your license, he probably would tell you to put in there that they have to pay until the patent's voided. So that would answer your question. So during any challenge, they would still be paying royalties if you had a decent life license agreement. Our license agreements all say that you know people have to pay until the patent's voided. So I guess that would be a part of a licensing agreement that there's this uh, these two types of actions against it. The, the licensing agreement stands until a final determination. Yeah, as long as the patent, none of these things will will take away the validity of the patent until the decision. A federal district court judge can invalidate a patent, any patent, for whatever reason he decides. They have the power to do that under the law. The Patent and Trial Board can can void a patent, any patent, for any reason they decide under the law. So once those decisions are made, the patent's worthless. Now, you can appeal those decisions to the circuit. And, you know, from the circuit, you could also appeal to the Supreme Court. Under the Supreme Court right now, to the best of my knowledge, they've not agreed to accept any cases involving, that I'm aware of, involving the Patent and Trial Board decisions. And they certainly haven't accepted, to the best of my knowledge, any cases involving the Alice decision that they rendered several years ago. So we'd like them to. I would like them to except Sertorin, as it's called, meaning that they'll handle a case and reevaluate the decision, but they haven't agreed to do that as of now, which has been bad, very, very, very bad for the patent system in the United States. And that answers your earlier question. As I said, I believe there's been a write-down, this is my opinion, of, of probably more than a trillion dollars on patent values in the United States patent, for United States patent holders. Things that used to go for a million dollars might go now for 100000 or less. Things that would sell portfolios for 15 million, 20 million might go now for two or three million. It's been a huge debacle, a huge, huge fire sale, huge, huge, horrible, horrible. Yeah, this could be used by an entrenched person in a given industry to stop new technologies from coming in. I mean, just all kinds of nefarious stuff. Well, as I said before, I feel so strongly about this because I believe in the power of that, you know, genius that's out there right now, the 17 year old. The Zuckerbergs and the Philos and the Yangs and the Wozniaks and the Jobs and the Michael Dells. Look at these guys who were kids. They weren't working for big companies. And they created these unbelievable companies that I have such respect for. Facebook and Twitter and, 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 and Apple. I mean, a trillion-dollar company now, Apple, due to Wozniak and Jobs, genius, you know, from nowhere. And yet, you know, any patents that they had at the early stage when they were operating on a shoestring in this current environment – they would have been trampled on, trampled on, you know, and that's unfortunate. And yet some of these larger companies, I will say this now, that are among the list that I just told you are the same companies now that are trampling, that are, that are now forgetting their past, forgetting their modest past when they were working in a dorm room or a garage, and they're now trampling on the smaller inventors. They are spending millions of dollars in lobbying in Washington to keep the patent system in their favor, not in our favor, the small patent owners in their favor. And that's just a shame. It's also, in my humble opinion, very short-sighted. Could you um, file a patent first in another country and then file it here? And would that help you at all? You can file patents once you filed here. It's PCT process, part of the International Patent Consortium Convention, I should say, a consortium convention. Um, so you can file a patent in a foreign country. Absolutely, you have to subject to the laws of that land and try to get the patent. To answer your question, aside from U.S. patents, if you have a German patent or a Korean patent or an EU patent, you know, um, yeah, then you, you would be able to sue in those countries under their laws. And I find, and I think the other people, my colleagues find in this industry, that those systems are much, much better, much quicker, more efficient, more favorable for justice for the patent owner than here in the United States. Here in the United well, States. Maybe- Maybe but you form a, a company overseas, do a patent overseas, and never file for it here. I don't know, or file for it and do like the PCT and kind of come in the back door. Maybe that's better for you somehow. The problem in filing foreign patents uh, uh, is it's very, very expensive. So a small player 
big players like you know IBM is one of the largest patent owners. I think they are actually in the world. They can afford to do that routinely as they should. And I assume companies like Apple and Facebook and these billion-dollar companies would do that routinely. I, I, I know, but smaller players, you know, that are smaller inventors, are not going to normally file PCTs because to file a U.S. patent, I give you an idea, Richard. This is just approximate. To file a U.S. patent in terms of the filing fees, not very much. It's maybe a thousand dollars, but then the legal fees, you know, in terms of pursuing it to, to, to its issue from the patent office could be another fifteen or twenty thousand dollars for a US patent or more, depending on your attorney. It could be fifty thousand dollars depending how long it takes. Now if you look at filing simultaneously a PCT, you might spend, and I know a lot of players that have done that, you might spend the file the PCT a hundred or hundred and fifty thousand dollars. You ship to file it in multiple jurisdictions and obey all the laws and do all the applications and everything else. So the difference between a U.S. patent um, and a, a set of foreign patents would be a tremendous difference in finances. A small player will, will not do that. You know, of all, the, of all the people that we talk to in our industry, I would say that, you know, the small players, I would say 95 to 99 percent of them have just U.S. patents. They don't have foreign patents. Big companies, however, routinely will have foreign patents. The IBMs, as I said, and the Apples and the Facebooks and the Twitters and you know, numerous other major companies, General Electric. I didn't mean to make this a dystopian view, but so what, what's, um, you know, for people listening that haven't filed a patent, but they want to, um, you know, we talked about provisional versus full patents. Any other recommendations? Should you, you know, if you have multiple ideas, should you go for multiple patents or just do one, try to license it or sell it, then move on? Any recommendations? For people? You know, that's a first question. How much money do you have? If, if, if a person, a small player has, you know, resources or they can gather resources from their family, you know, or their friends, then I would absolutely say to file non-provisional because then you get action right away. From the time you file, the patent office starts the clock ticking and they'll give you action and you'll know within a period of time. You don't have that one year holding time. It is more expensive, as we said earlier in the show, but it's a real good way to go. The idea of filing multiple patents, an idea is tremendous. I would absolutely... So in other words, if you come to me, Richard, and you say, I have $1,000, what do I do? You know, then probably the only thing you can do is file a provisional patent and, you know, wait until you have a little more money and then pursue a non-provisional. If you say, Lee, my uncle just left me, you know, or my aunt Matilda just left me $50,000 and I have all these great ideas. and Everyone tells me it's a great idea. I can make lawn chairs fly, you know, and then the lawn companies are going to be interested in that. I would say, you know, take your $50,000 and file seven, you know, non-provisional patents. And, you know, it's going to be fantastic. The more, the merrier. So absolutely. And, 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 and just pursue them vigorously. And, you know, when, when you get those patents issued, you know, every company, you know, hopefully the lawn, hopefully the lawn chair companies will be interested in buying them. They might try to steal them, you know, so you better have more money if they try to steal them, you know, if they try to steal them. You know, but um, but hopefully um, you'll work something out and you can monetize those patents. They'll certainly be valuable, I would think, at that point. In many of my portfolios, as you said at the beginning of the show, and I gave you additional update, I have about 150 patents, something like that, issued. In many areas, I'll have 10 or 15 patents in one single subject matter. Uh, I see. I gotcha. um, would you recommend that someone files a provisional and then tries to get a licensing deal before they file a full? you think they could do such a thing where the Absolutely. company itself would put pay for the full? Absolutely not. As we've said, I guess, in one of the themes of this conversation, it seems like is how companies, larger companies, will try to steal your, you know, or try to trample your patent. You know, if you go to a company, even with an issued patent, one of the first things they're going to do is say, this patent's worthless, and I'll tell you why. It's ineligible subject matter. You know, and if you try to assert the patent, we're going to trample on it. So larger companies do that routinely. They say your patent's worthless. We don't give a crap that you have a patent. So, um, no. So it's even worse if you say you have a provisional patent. A provisional patent has zero standing. Until the patent is issued, whether it's provisional or non-provisional, there is zero standing. And my experience is most companies in the United States will just laugh. They won't take it in any way serious. That's been our experience anyway. I can't tell you that, you know, someone else may hit the jackpot, you know, for me, if I buy one lotto ticket, it's very unlikely that I'll win the lottery, but some people do. I would say that the chances of hitting the lottery are, you know, extraordinarily 
extraordinarily large if you have a provisional patent and you think anyone's going to pay you for it. Or for that matter, a non-provisional. The only thing people take somewhat seriously, and not even that, unfortunately, um, is a, an issued patent. And most people, most companies, to, to make this very clear to your listeners, most companies in the United States will not take a, a issued patent in any way seriously 95% of the time until they're sued on it, until they're sued on it, which is why my company, Patent Asset Management, has attorneys around the country and a full team of resources, you know, in order to, um, in order to protect patent rights. That's what we do. So if you file the full, but you're pending only and you haven't gotten your, uh, you know, haven't gotten it fully approved, again, you think it's worthless? A patent in terms of monetizing, to answer your question, that's not issued as worthless in terms of monetizing. That's been my experience. People won't take them seriously and they won't pay for them. Because, and I don't blame them. How do you know that a, an unissued patent is ever going to become issued? You don't know what the patent office is going to do. You have no authority at the patent office. So any, I wouldn't buy, let me say this. I wouldn't buy unissued patents right now because they are worthless. Hmm, okay. Well, well very good. They, you talked about your service a couple of times. So for listeners that uh, they have patents that are issued or they want guidance somehow, where can they go? How can they take this further and use the knowledge and contact you? Right. Um, you can go to our website, um, which is www.uspm.com, I believe. You can also email me, which would be lee at l-e-i-g-h at patent, p-a-t-e-n-t, M-G-M-T, which stands for management.com. So it's Lee at patentmanagement.com, and I'll turn it over to our staff, and we'd be happy to, to hear from any of your listeners and, and, and talk to them and see if we can help them, if that's possible, if they're interested and that's possible. So um, either of those um, routes would, um, would work for us. Well, very good. Well, Lee, thanks for coming on the call. I really appreciate your wisdom. No, thanks, Richard. I really enjoyed it as always, and I hope it was helpful to your listeners. And you know, um, and I always enjoy chatting with you. I hope we'll get the chance to do it again in the future. So be well. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.